Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week I began speaking about the subject of the Holy Spirit. We looked at Acts chapter 2 and I suggested that the coming of the Holy Spirit on that new community brought the disciples and through them, us, into three things. It brought them and us into the presence of the future. It brought them and us into the presence of the Lord. And it brought them and us into the presence of the nations. What I want to do tonight is take the second of those two things, the presence of the Lord, and kind of unpack that just a little more if we can. Pentecost brings us into a new dimension of the presence of the Lord. Last week I mentioned that Christianity is intended to be much more than uh, just a cognitive, creedal uh, belief system. It's actually intended to be an encounter with the living God. It's intended to be existential and experiential as well as intellectual and creedal. So Christianity is this wonderful blend of both rational and mystical. It's not an either-or. It's too rational to be only mystical, but it's far too mystical to be only rational. When the resurrected Jesus met with his awestruck disciples, he commissioned them to take the good news, the gospel, to the nations. However, in the Gospel of Luke, he told them that they needed to experience something of God's empowering presence before they commenced this mammoth task. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 45 and following, it reads, And he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. This empowering encounter, this empowering event, is described as the promise of the Father. Though there are many passages in the Scripture that have promises to the people of God, as far as I'm aware at least, this is the only one that is described in these terms as the promise of the Father. Fifty days after this event, the Holy Spirit fell and At Pentecost, Peter, after the event that had brought in such a crowd, stood up before the crowd and he referenced in his sermon these words of Jesus when he said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this this which you now see and hear. And Paul also in the epistle to the Ephesians describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of promise when he says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Apparently, in the councils of the Godhead, the Father made a promise to Jesus and his followers. And he said, I'll give you, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and you will pour him out on your followers. And that outpouring will endue them with power. The Greek language here literally means that they will be clothed. The word endue means to put on a garment. They will be clothed with power. Being clothed is a symbolic, metaphorical use of the idea of clothing, and it aims to draw attention to the dominant feature of a situation or event that is seeking to be described. 
So in Psalm 65 and verse 13, the psalmist says, the pastures were clothed with flocks and the valleys are also covered with grain. What the psalmist is doing here is saying the sheep are so numerous that they appear to be covering the pasture-like clothing. They are the dominant characteristic of the scene that he's seeking to describe. When we say something like, man, the fog just covered the valley, we are trying to suggest that if you looked at that scene, the fog is hard to look past or through. It's the, dominate, it's the dominant feature of, of that particular scene. And sometimes the scripture uses clothing to describe the chief characteristic of a, not just a, a, a landscape or a situation, but of a person. So in Psalm 93, the psalmist says, The Lord reigns, he's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed, he's girded himself with strength. So for the psalmist, majesty and strength are the outstanding characteristics of this picture that he's seeking to convey of, of the Lord. In Job chapter 29, verse 14, Job says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Effectively, he's saying this is the characteristic that marks my life. And if you and I were to meet Job, the things that would jut out, as it were, that would be dominant, would be righteousness and justice. In the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, as Gideon is going out to face the Midianites, completely outnumbered and, and on the natural at least overwhelmed, the Bible says that the Lord clothed Gideon with the Holy Spirit. He was clothed with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that ensured victory on that occasion. And one commentator said Gideon was the suit of clothes that the Holy Spirit wore that day. So when Jesus is saying, I want to endue you with power, I want to clothe you with power, he's saying he wants this fledgling community that he's giving birth to, he wants the Holy Spirit's presence and power to be the dominant feature of their communal life. In, in Daniel chapter 5, there's a description of Daniel. It's a lovely little phrase that it says, Daniel was of an excellent spirit. Now, the idea in the Hebrew language is that his spirit life was the thing that you would encounter if you met Daniel. Literally in the Hebrew, it has his spirit jutted out. It dominated. We, we might say, the Spirit clothed Daniel and it was the chief characteristic that, that marked his life. It was what you bumped into when you encountered him. You know, when you meet some people, the first thing that you bump into that juts out of their life is their intellect. They are so analytical that you muse, I wonder if they're capable of feeling anything. I wonder if an emotion came up and actually shook them by the hand whether they would recognize it. So in their minds. Some people, it's their emotional life that actually dominates. Everything is a drama. The emotions that swirl around their lives and they wear their emotions on their sleeves. For some people, it's the willfulness of their lives. You encounter a stubborn set will. Stubborn as a mule comes to mind. For some, it's their fleshly life that dominates. They're sensual creatures and it shows and you sense it when you meet them. I think the coming of the Holy Spirit is intended to make us something like Daniel. So that what stands out as people encounter us is our spirit life. It's what predominates. It's what, if you like, it's what juts out. 
Now you might be thinking, Don, well, I, I can see why that fledgling community would need such an empowering encounter. I mean, the task before them truly was mammoth. Take the gospel to all of the nations. But, but are you serious? Can we expect that same thing to happen to us today? Now, I'd want to say to you, well, a task is not complete, so why would Jesus remove his empowering? On the day of Pentecost, Peter, at that first sermon, said to the crowd, the promise, that's the Father's promise he's referencing, is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he's talking about the Father's promise. And what he's saying here is not that this will go geographically around the world, although that's true also. What he's talking about here is generational, not geographic. He says it will be to you and to your children and to as many as are afar off. Not geographically, but generationally. So I would say in the light of an unfinished task and in the light of a promise that has generations in mind, you and I qualify for this empowering presence. You say to me, Don, well, when does, when does this happen? I mean, I've always thought that when you came to Christ, you received all that the Holy Spirit had to come, had to give. I mean, doesn't Romans say that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him? And it does say something after that effect. So don't I get all of the Holy Spirit when I'm converted? I'm a little confused. I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm not sure that I've had that empowering experience that you seem to be talking about. Am I lacking something? Are you suggesting, Don, that this empowering experience is actually different from regeneration, from being born again? Goodness me, you ask lots of questions. Let's see if we can unpack this just a little by looking at the life of the early disciples and seeing if we can't extract something that might be paradigmatic, that might be a pattern that, that, that is effective and, and um, appropriate for our lives too, to see if we can discern something. So as we go to the scripture, we notice that the disciples' first encounter with the Holy Spirit post-resurrection occurs or is written up in John chapter 20, verse 21. It occurs on the morning that Jesus, or on the evening of the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. How are we to think about that passage in the light of what we read before about Luke's gospel when Jesus tells them, don't you depart from Jerusalem until you receive this empowering presence of the Holy Spirit? I mean, there's, there's 50 days between John and what Luke is describing and what was outpoured on Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days in resurrection appearances, then he ascended, and then they waited 10 days in Jerusalem before the, the 50 days were up and um, the Feast of Pentecost was being enacted and the Holy Spirit fell. I want to suggest to you that in John chapter 20, this is the first encounter, this is the first occasion when Jesus' disciples were able to receive the life of the new creation that, that in its fullest sense. 
The Greek word translated breathed in this passage is found only once in the entire New Testament. But it is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is, if you're interested, called the Septuagint. And it's found in a couple of places. It's found in Genesis chapter 7, where it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's also found in the passage that that uh, Nick read to us in Ezekiel 37, breathe on the bones. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 20, and it's a word that, that describes a creative act of God breathing life into a man. In Genesis, the one that he just formed from the dust. In Ezekiel, the bones that needed the regeneration. In John's gospel, the word describes God's breath of new life, the breath of the new creation that he had come to loose on the earth. This is the commencement of new creation. This is regeneration. This is the disciples entering fully into the new covenant through what we call the new birth. And yet, Jesus indicates in the Gospel of Luke that there is another empowering experience before they are to go to the nations. That takes place on the day of Pentecost. At the very least, in the disciples' experience, the new birth, the breath of God that brings new life to them seems to be separated from this experience of Pentecostal fullness. Now the question, of course, is that unique or is that normative? Some people say, oh, that, that was just for the early church. That's not, that's not for us. Well, what else does the early church tell us about this? You look at Acts chapter 8. We see Philip the evangelist going down to Samaria, preaching the word of God. It says in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with loud shrieks came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured, so that there was great joy in the city. The crusade, if you like, was incredibly effective, and the whole city was filled with anticipation and excitement. And verse 12 says, When they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. They expressed belief and they were then baptized in water by Philip. But the passage goes on to say that the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the gospel had gone to Samaria and they sent Peter and John down to them. And in verse 14 it says, the two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now that creates a real curly theological problem for those who claim you get everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer the time that you give your heart to Jesus. Because these guys gave their hearts to Jesus. Peter, uh, sorry, Philip recognised that that was the case, had no hesitation in baptising them, and yet it says the Holy Spirit had fallen on none of them, and Peter and John come, lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we aren't told the details in this passage of what actually unfolded uh, among the Samaritans when Peter and John laid their hands on them. All it says is they received the Holy Spirit. But verse 18 tells us that something must have been quite impressive because Simon the magician, so impressed by what he saw when Peter and John laid hands on them that he offered money to them so that he could do what they had just done. And Peter 
Peter's response is informative too, because in verse 21 he says to this magician, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now the word matter there in the Greek indicates something being said, it indicates speech or it indicates talking. Now I might be arguing from silence here, but I think it's a reasonable deduction to assume that what happened to the disciples at Pentecost was happening again here, that they, having been have hands laid on them, they were speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Simon is so impressed by this speech, by this talking, that he wants to buy the ability to be able to impart that to other people. So Acts chapter 8 seems to repeat the pattern of the early disciples. There is a gap, there is a season, in this case probably three or four days, however long it took Peter and John to walk from Jerusalem into the area of Samaria, before people received the Holy Spirit in this empowering presence. They had believed, they were baptised, later this empowering presence. Acts chapter 19. Paul arrives in the city of Ephesus. He finds some disciples and interacts with them, but he senses that something isn't quite right. Something seems to be lacking. That they are Christians in some sense is borne out by Paul's reference to faith on their part. And he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? I, I see that you've believed. My question is, have you received the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit since that occasion? Now, question, if you receive all that the Holy Spirit has to offer when you give your life to Jesus, I'd like to suggest that question is a nonsensical one. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same as Paul saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you received the Holy Spirit? Paul is saying, you've believed, I understand that. Have you received the empowering presence? Paul discovers that questioning these disciples, they were a bit like Apollos, who's described in the verses just before Acts chapter 19 and chapter 18. And it says of Apollos, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila come along and it says they explained the word of God to Apollos more accurately. Now we're not quite sure what, what that conversation was about, but we know there was something lacking in Apollos' experience. Paul senses the same lack in the Ephesians and he explains the word of God and the way of God more accurately as well. And in verse 5 it says, On hearing his explanation, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus and then Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. In each of those occasions, the early disciples... In, in John 20 and Luke 24, there's a difference between the regenerating breath of God that comes into them and the endowment of power. In Acts chapter 8, there's a difference between their believing and being baptized and their being impacted by the Holy Spirit coming upon them. In Acts chapter 19, there's a difference in time between their belief and their baptism, which is followed almost immediately after by Paul laying his hands on them and praying for them. So belief, baptism in water, endowment, with power from on high. You say, well, Don, you know, I know enough of the scriptures to know that in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' household wasn't like that. Something different happened there. And, and you're right to a point. That story tells about Peter, who with a degree of reluctance goes down to a Gentile home, starts sharing the gospel with them, and the Holy Spirit interrupts his sermon. 
He's, he's explaining the way of God to them. And it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For when they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter is preaching to an unconverted crowd, and I don't know how to explain this, but before he even gets to lead them to Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they're speaking in tongues, and Peter says, well, look, you know, they got what we got, so they need to be baptized in water. So they're baptized in water afterwards. And in this instance, conversion or belief is almost simultaneous with receiving the Holy Spirit, and water baptism follows afterwards. You know what? As you look at the book of Acts in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is reliable, but he's unpredictable. And quite frankly, he's not that impressed with or bound by our so-called patterns. I was telling this morning, I had a friend who was halfway through the sinner's prayer. In fact, he said, dear Lord Jesus, and he was going to say, I'm a sinner. I need you to come into my life. I want my life turned around. I invite you into my heart. That was his intentions. He said, dear Lord Jesus, and he got smitten by the power of the Holy Spirit, fell on the ground, started speaking in tongues. And it was like, stop, stop, stop. Hang on, he's got to say that prayer first. <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit didn't seem to mind. And he inter inter interacted with him before what we would say he even got saved. You know what? Um, I, I, I had an experience years, years and years ago where we, we were in a season of real renewal and revival. The Lord was doing some remarkable things in the church that I was part of. And I was up the front. I was uh, involved in leading the meeting at the time. And a young girl had come in. She had heard what was happening among us and decided she was going to check us out. Her friends chickened out and they said, we're going off somewhere else, we'll come back and get you. So anyway, she came in, she got encountered by the Lord. And I don't recall how it happened, but she was up the front on the ground speaking in tongues. And she was there for a long time. Well, her friends finally came back and they were waiting for her. And one of her friends looked in through the window and saw her friend lying on the ground, hands in the air, babbling away in some strange language. She got a fright and thought, what's going on? Opened the door, came walking in, and I saw her open the door. She came halfway down the aisle, and the Holy Spirit hit her. She hit the floor speaking in tongues. And I thought, I don't have theology for this. That girl's not even saved. How does, how does this happen? And I'm not quite sure how it happens. But one thing I do think is while the order of these things that I'm talking about, belief, Baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit, sometimes seems to get muddled up. There is, if you like, if I can put it this way, an initiation package. When you come to faith, there is this initiation package that is involved with these three things, with belief, with water baptism, and with the reception, the endowment of the Holy Spirit on, uh, in power. On the day of Pentecost, when the, when the people who heard Peter preaching were cut to the heart and they said, how do we enter this new community? What must we do to be saved? Peter's answer seems to bear out this threefold initiation package that we're seeing through the book of Acts. Peter says to them, repent. That's give your heart to the Lord. Turn from your sins. Put your trust in Christ. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
There seems to be this pattern as you look at the early church. Well, Don, you say, I don't understand. If you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, which you're acknowledging we do, how can you have more of him in an empowering experience that you're talking about? Surely you either have him dwelling in you or you don't. How can you have more of the presence of a person who's already present? Perhaps you're asking the wrong question. Rather than asking, how can, the Holy, how can I have more of the Holy Spirit if I already have him? Instead of asking that question, how can I possibly have more of him? Ask the question, could he possibly have more of me? That's a better question. Could he possibly have more of me? I've, I've entered into and decided I'm not going to do any more the theological war of how all of this transpires. Does the Holy Spirit come from within or does he come from above? Um, you know, if he's inside of me at conversion, then how can he come upon me in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I just put my hands up and say, oh, I don't know. Look at the pattern. It seems to happen. And sometimes I've pointed people back to the Noah's flood in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, where it says, the fountains of the deep opened up and the windows of heaven opened. Where did the water come from? Inside and from above, simultaneously, from within, from without. As I say, I don't claim to understand the dynamic of the Holy Spirit's actions, but one thing I do know is that we need them if we are ever going to fulfill our vocation and our mission. Now, some of you might be saying, Don, you're preaching to the choir. I had this experience in 1973. I've been filled with the Spirit speaking in tongues kind of person since the 1970s. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but I'll ask you a question or just make an observation. The fact that you were filled in 1973 tells me absolutely nothing about your present state. If I said to you, I filled the bucket last week, that doesn't give any indication as to whether it's filled in full today. And the sad reality about my bucket, and I suspect it's true of your bucket as well, is that it leaks. And we need constant refillings. That's why Paul says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine where is in, where, for that's excess, or wherein is excess, or in this translation, debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what Paul is not doing here is saying, hey, you guys need to embrace that initiation package, you know, faith, baptism in water, and empowering experience. He, he's speaking to a spirit-filled church. This is probably 20, 30 years after. This is a fully-fledged Pentecostal church, if you like. And he's speaking to a spirit-filled community. And he's saying, I know you leak, because I do too. And we need these constant ongoing infillings. It's not enough to say, I had an experience so many months ago, so many years ago, so many decades ago. My question is, is it up to date? Is it working in your life today? That passage says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek construction of Paul's words are really insightful. Number one, it's an imperative so an imperative is a command. This is not an optional extra. He's not saying, hey, if you feel like it, this might be a good idea. It might be an option, a bit like sunroof on, uh, and mags on your car. Yeah, it doesn't really matter, but if you want to, it might be good. What he's saying is, hey, listen, this is the fuel that makes your car go. This is not an optional extra. It's, it's a command. The second thing about the construction in the Greek is it's plural. 
It's not for an elite group. It's not for people who are in ministry. It's for every single believer. It's how you enter the community of God. You come in with repentance, with baptism in water, with this enduring power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's for all of us. The next thing is it's passive, which means it's something you receive. You can't drum it up by self-effort. You can't get it by some kind of emotional performance. You cannot produce drunkenness. Paul's just compared being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, which is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Remember, people looked at the people being filled with the Spirit and said, they've got to be drunk. So Paul uses that same analogy, and, and when you tease out that analogy, the thing with alcohol is you can't make yourself drunk. You simply drink, and if you drink enough, drunkenness starts to happen within you. You, you cannot produce drunkenness. No one needs to or, or even should try and produce the effects of being spirit-filled. What you do is you come make yourself available. You drink, as it were, and he does what he does. And the last thing is it's present tense. So it's an imperative, it's plural, it's passive, and it's present, which means it's an ongoing process. As I say, that you were filled in 1973 tells me nothing about your state now. And Paul is saying, you need this and you need it to be continuous. So in finishing, and I'll get the musicians just to quietly come up if you would, get ready. When people say, how do I do this? Well, I use the word ready as an acrostic. So the first letter speaks to me of something. And the first letter of ready is R, and I, and I'm, and I say repent. If you haven't started your journey with Jesus, this is where it starts. You don't go to Pentecost before you come to Calvary. Calvary precedes Pentecost and is the reason for Pentecost. It was A.W. Tozer many, many years ago who said, beware the Christless Pentecost. We come to Christ, so we repent, we start our journey with Jesus, and then there is this infilling. And the E stands for expect it. You know, uh, expectancy is the springboard of faith. When we expect things, it's amazing how often they start to unfold. When you have no expectation, it's amazing how nothing happens. I don't expect it, so therefore it doesn't happen. When you start to posture yourself with a sense of anticipation and expectation, it's amazing how things happen. The third thing is A, and it's ask. Simply ask. All right? You know, in Luke's gospel, it says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Holy Spirit be given to those who ask? Ask for it. Lord, I haven't had this empowering experience. I hear other people speaking in tongues and doing spiritual things. It's not anything that's happened to me. Well, friends, it's an imperative. It's a command. You should ask. Start asking. Lord, I want to be fully fledged, fitted up member of this new community, endued with power for vocation and mission. So I'm asking that you would meet with me. Then the last two, drink and yield. We're going to talk more about those in a couple of weeks' time at the evening of Pentecost when we give a time for ministry. And what I would like to suggest to you this evening is that you just go away and think about some of the things that I've said. You go back through the scripture. Don't just dismiss this. Don't just simply say, oh, I don't know, that's just kind of like Pentecostals. They do rave on sometimes. You go to the scriptures. 
Is this pattern there? If it's there and it hasn't happened to you, you have to grapple with why not? Is this something that was just for way back when? Well, we've looked at Peter when he says it's to you, it's to your children, it's to you who are afar off. How do you find afar off? I think we're probably afar off. A couple of thousand years afar off and it's for us. It's for us. The task hasn't been fulfilled yet. So why would the empowering be removed? You have to grapple with this issue. Am I, have I experienced that? Am I supposed to? And if you come to the conclusion that you are, start asking. You know what? I, I've shared this message so many times I've lost count over the years and, and I've lost count of the number of times that people have come back to me and said, Don, you preached that message. On the way home, I started speaking in tongues. The Spirit of the Lord came and touched me. The next day, I was doing the dishes, thinking about this. In those days, we did dishes. We didn't put them in a... Yeah, we, we, we. The next day, as I was doing the dishes, the Spirit of the Lord came on me. And, and I began speaking in tongues. Ask for it, expect it, start praying about it, believing for it. And, and uh, if nothing's happened, come on Pentecost Sunday. I had a dear friend, and I'll, I'll finish with this story, I promise. He was a Catholic priest. I, I was a Catholic convert way back in the, when the world was black and white. And him and I started to seek this experience together. We would go into the Catholic church together. It was empty and we'd, we'd wait and we'd wait and we'd wait. And at the end of 45 minutes, he'd look at me and say, anything happened on? I'd go, no, Eddie, sorry, nothing. And we, we did this for a long time. And then I left and went to university. And I got encountered by the Holy Spirit while I was in university. I come back and told my friend, Eddie, the priest, and he was a little put out. It hadn't happened to him. And we kind of went our own ways, except that on Pentecost Sunday one night, I drove in, Karen and I drove in from church, and Eddie's little green V-dub was in our driveway. And he was sitting in our lounge, and he was talking to my mum. And we came in and said, hey, Eddie, how are you? I'm really disappointed, he said. I said, why? He said, it's Pentecost Sunday. So? He said, I've been really, really asking for that empowering presence, that empowering encounter, and it hasn't happened. And it's Pentecost Sunday. I looked at my watch and said, Eddie, it's only 10 o'clock. There's two hours to go. I said, would you like us to pray for you? He said, I'd love you to. So Karen and I laid our hands on him, and I can't begin to tell you what happened. But he started to giggle, laugh. I thought, are we saying something silly? Are we being... And then he started speaking in tongues. And then he fell on the floor, and away it went. Two o'clock in the morning, we're trying to get him up. By that stage, this is a Catholic priest, he's down just to his trousers. Collars come off, jackets come off. He, we, we tried to sober him up, I don't know how many times, bring him a cup of coffee, sit down, Eddie, stop it. We've got to go back to Palmerston North, we're 30 minutes away. And it's two o'clock in the morning, you've got to behave yourself. So I gave him the coffee. He'd get the coffee to his lips and he'd start <laughs> Coffee would be down. We'd sort of catch it. Two o'clock in the morning, we gave up. Said, Eddie, get in your little V-dub and get out of here. He got in his V-dub, drove off, turned the wrong way, disappeared. He told us later he never went home that night. And he became a catalyst in what was to become the Catholic Renewal Movement. 
And it all happened on Pentecost Sunday because he asked, he expected, he got his hands laid on him. Now I can't promise you that same experience. The goal actually is not an experience in and of itself. The goal is not euphoria. The goal is not ecstasy. The goal is an empowering presence touching your life and filling you. And you may or may not feel something. But I want to tell you, your life will be changed. My life was dramatically changed by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I've run in the power of that experience for 40 years plus. There's something incredibly empowering about that experience. I commend it to you. I think the Bible commends it to you. And if it hasn't happened to you, ask for it. And if it hasn't happened by Pentecost Sunday, let's believe together that it will, okay? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.